branches in the hands of the vine dresser. Shalom. Thank you for joining us for the sermon of the fifth Sunday of Easter, May 2nd, 2021, from Christ Church, Jerusalem. Jesus calls himself the vine, drawing on an image recurrent throughout the scriptures, and places his followers as branches of himself. Jesus tells us that the Father is the vine dresser who meticulously prunes and trims the branches so that they will produce the sweetest fruit. Neville Jones reminds us that we are called to trust the vine dresser's discipline as a sign of our sonship and maturing into the likeness of Jesus. We begin with the lectionary readings. First reading for today is from Isaiah chapter 5, 1 through 7. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he took Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wool, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds and not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. This is the word of the Lord. For our second reading tonight, we're going to read uh, 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed us his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how we love this is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear 
because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. This is the word of the Lord. The gospel reading is from John chapter 15. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. John chapter 15, verses 1 to 8. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to me, my disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. Today we are looking at the well-known teaching of Jesus about the true vine found in John chapter 15 that uh, we've just heard. And as it happens, we have a visual aid. Our stained glass window at the front of the church there is, depicts the true vine. So maybe if you find the uh, talk not particularly stimulating, you can go and look at that more closely after the service to see what that has to say. Anyway, this passage is a really very familiar, and partly because of that, but generally because it's helpful, I'm going to spend a bit of time considering this passage in the context in the gospel, and also the use of vine and vineyard as metaphors in scripture. So this account is set on the evening of the Passover, on the day before Jesus died. He has just celebrated the Passover meal with his closest disciples. The previous two chapters, 13 and 14, include the account of Jesus washing the disciples' feet and his exchange with Judas, after which Judas leaves to do what he sees fit. This is followed by Jesus' explanation that though he is about to leave them, he will send them the Holy Spirit to comfort, 
to guide and teach them. At the end of chapter 14, we read that they leave the upper room and then make their way out of Jerusalem and across the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane. That could easily take half an hour, especially when you're in a group and are stopping to explain and teach along the way. Perhaps they passed a vine growing by a house or as they crossed the valley. It would be characteristic of Jesus to take that chance to use it as a visual aid for his teaching. We know that Jesus earnestly looked forward to sharing this Passover with his disciples. And no doubt, he had thought deeply about the things he wanted to tell them that evening before he was arrested and taken away. So we have this sense that we are privileged to read and hear some of the really important things that Jesus said that evening. John tells us that his purpose in writing the gospel is so that those who read and hear that will know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. John's carefully crafted gospel contains several sets of sevens. There are seven signs of Jesus' divine power, the things he's able to do without any possibility other than it's the work of God. There are seven confessions of Jesus as the Son of God. And here in this chapter 15, we have the last of the seven of the I am statements of Jesus. And this is the list. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. By using I am with these metaphors, Jesus is deliberately alluding to the way that God revealed himself in the Old Testament, particularly to Moses at the burning bush. But the I am in the phrase, I am the true vine, is not the only word that comes loaded with meaning. So let's look at the words vine and vineyard a bit more closely. The fruit trees most commonly referred to in the Bible are pomegranate, olive, vine, and fig. Of these, vines and vineyards appear more frequently than all of the others put together. And though we know that Paul uses the olive tree as an illustration of the new covenant people of God in Romans 11, it is the vine which is most often used as a type or metaphor for the people of Israel. So, for example, in Psalm 80 we read, You have brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and planted it. You prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root 
and it filled the land. But then we have in our reading this evening from Isaiah chapter 5, the indictment of what Israel has become despite the best possible provision from the Lord. And I'm going to read a few verses of this from the ESV translation, just by way of reminder. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a winepress in it, so he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And then verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. Both Jeremiah in chapter 2, 21, and Hosea in chapter 10, verse 1, have the same prophetic warning using the imagery of a vine. Now, if we read later on in Isaiah chapter 5, it's clear that he sees that the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of Judah to Babylon is inevitable, given the stubbornness of the people. But interestingly, that theme of judgment is not his last words in terms of the image of the vineyard. See how these verses from Isaiah 27, verses 2 to 5, contrast with that sad state of affairs in chapter 5. And maybe we might see these verses on the screen. It'll be helpful. It says, in that day, now we know when that phrase is there, we know that there in view is something dramatic. In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle, I would march against them, I would burn them up together. Or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. Here, Isaiah is prophesying something completely different than what we heard from chapter 5. Those who would seek to choke and destroy the vineyard that's in the imagery of the briars and the thorns, could perhaps be understood as the Gentile nations around Israel. Whoever they are, the second part of the prophecy implies that they only have one option for survival, and that is to make peace with the Lord. I don't think it's too much of a stretch to think that Jesus in his choice of the phrase, the true vine, saw himself, together with his faithful followers, as that image of the vineyard 
which has the Lord, his Father, as its keeper, washing over it and watering it continually. These we've looked at are some of the more significant images of a vine or vineyard in Scripture. But in addition, the Jewish worshippers in Jerusalem in Jesus' time would have seen a memorable golden vine that adorned the temple. Standing in the temple complex, facing the temple, they would be dwarfed by the 50-meter-high facade, all covered in gold. And in the middle were the golden doors leading into the holy place of the temple. Either side of those doors were two golden columns. And on these columns, and between them, above the doors, was a golden vine of enormous proportions. Josephus, the Jewish historian of the first century, says that each of the clusters of grapes in that vine was the height of a man. Just imagine. This golden vine represented the people of God gathered in his presence before the temple. Now let's turn to the gospel, John chapter 15, and see how Jesus applies this image of the vine. And maybe we could have the uh, John chapter 15, David, if it's available. Jesus talks about the vine in two ways. Firstly, is the idea his father is the gardener or the vine dresser. And secondly, that we as his followers are the branches. Both aspects have the same endpoint in view, which is fruitfulness. It's been well understood for thousands of years that the quality of the grape harvest has a great deal to do with the skill and attention of the vine dresser. More so than any other fruit crop of that time, producing good, sweet grapes was a very labor-intensive process. Vines needed pruning after the harvest and again in the spring, followed by watchfulness throughout the summer to prevent shoots that just had leaves and tendrils from diverting nutrients from the fruitful branches. In verse 2 of chapter 15, we have this image of a very hands-on vine dresser wielding a sharp knife and doing one of two things. Either removing the shoots and branches that show no sign of producing fruit, or trimming the productive branches so that they will produce more and better fruit. So which sort of branch do you want to be? Notice there is no third option of, for the free-willing Christian life. In other words, no option for doing your own thing and making it up as you go along. So if we, as the famous phrase says, choose life, we have to trust the skill of the heavenly vine dresser. He knows what he's doing and knows what is best for our fruitfulness. 
Another way of talking about this is discipline. And the writer to the Hebrews makes the same point in Hebrews chapter 12. He says this, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Hebrews 12, verses 7 to 8. Now in verse 2 of John 15, the word prune can also carry the meaning of to purge or to cleanse. So we have this play on words when we come to verse 3, and Jesus reassures his disciples that you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. These two words in verse 2 and verse 3 have the same Greek root. Jesus is saying that the effect of the words he has spoken to them, they're changing their life, and the commitment they've shown and the sacrifices they have made to follow him have already had a purging and cleansing effect in their lives. Another lesson about pruning is that, as in nature, sometimes damage to the vine means that parts of it need to be pruned back much more radically than normal. This may mean that it takes more than one season to grow back, but with the skill and care of the vine dresser, it does recover. So if we feel that we are going through such a time of radical pruning, we have to trust that the Father is in control and he really does know what he's doing. Now from verse 4 onwards, where the image moves to the vine and the branches, John uses the word abide or the word remain quite a few times. The word abide means to live, to reside, and to remain. And in English, we have the word abode, which is derived from abide, which is the place where we live or reside. Now, if you think that this word, abide or remain, is typical of John's writing, you're correct. In particular, the phrase abide in or remain in is used 16 times in the New Testament, and as far as I can tell, all of them are either in John's Gospel or John's letters. In verses 4 to 7, some very strong statements are made, and they're used to describe what it means to be abiding in or not abiding in Jesus. So we have, when abiding in Jesus, we can bear much fruit. We can ask for whatever we wish, and it will be done for us. However, when not abiding in Jesus, we cannot bear fruit. And more than that, we can do nothing. We can do nothing of eternal consequence. We are thrown away. We are eventually gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. 
These paint a stark contrast. But I'm always grateful that Jesus spoke plainly about issues of life and death because we can become so familiar with the words on the page or the words we hear that it helps to have them presented either in a different version or presented in a different way in order to appreciate again their impact and their urgency. Another thing to notice is the purpose of the fruit. In verse 8, it tells us that the fruitfulness of the vine is to bring glory to the Father and vindication to his Son. So our focus should not be on the fruit itself so much as on sustaining and our relationship with Jesus. And when that is as it should be, the fruit will appear in its season to the glory of God. So what does the idea of abiding in Jesus mean? Here are a few ideas. It means we can be in his presence without fear or shame because we know we are forgiven. It means we can receive grace to forgive others just as we have been forgiven. It means we feel at home in his presence. It means we are able to tell him our deepest concerns in prayer, knowing that he cares for us. It means we can have communion with him through his word, by his spirit. It means we accept his guidance and correction that is able to transform us from within. It means we can open our hearts to the needy and to those whose lives are broken by sin. It means we are more able to see others the way he, in his infinite love, sees them. It means we can trust him with things we don't understand or the things that are beyond our control. And in my experience, the list of things that I don't understand or are beyond my control is a very long list indeed. So when you have a chance, maybe in this coming week ahead, you can reflect on this, this idea of abiding in Jesus and make your own list about what it means for you to abide in him. I think it's helpful that this idea of abiding is expressed as a two-way thing. It's got a reciprocal nature about it. And this appears several times in chapter 15 in slightly different ways. And I'll give the examples. Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you. Verse 4. He who abides in me, and I in him, will bear much fruit. Verse 5. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you. Verse 7. Now these next three statements in 
are from our reading in 1 John chapter 4 that we heard earlier. But they use this same device, this reciprocal nature of abiding. Listen to this. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given his, us of his spirit. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. God is love, and whoever abides in God, and God abides in him. So let's take this idea of Jesus by his Spirit abiding in us, and then consider what makes him feel at home in us. And to help us, I'm going to read an excerpt from a book by A.W. Tozer, published about 70 years ago. And just as an aside, I started reading A.W. Tozer when I was a teenager, and his clarity and elegant turn of phrase meant that many of his words and insights have stayed with me down the years. Maybe he's not so well known now, but I'm pleased to be able to share this his writing with you. So this is what Tozer wrote. Make your thoughts a clean sanctuary. To God, our thoughts are things. Our thoughts are the decorations inside the sanctuary where we live. If our thoughts are purified by the blood of Christ, we are living in a clean room no matter if we are wearing overalls covered with grease. Your thoughts pretty much decide the mood and weather and climate inside your heart. And God considers your thoughts as part of you. Thoughts of peace, thoughts of pity, thoughts of mercy, thoughts of kindness, thoughts of charity, Thoughts of God, thoughts of the Son of God, these are all pure things, good things, and high things. Therefore, if you would cultivate the Spirit's acquaintance, you must get hold of your thoughts and not allow your mind to be a wilderness in which every kind of unclean beast roams and bird flies. You must have a clean heart. So as a final thought, I just want to say, no doubt all of us at some time have spent time and money and energy on decoration and furniture and furnishings for where we live. And as well as those sort of big changes, there is the routine cleaning so that we feel comfortable with our surroundings and happy to receive visitors. How much more should we take time and effort to make the Holy Spirit welcome and comfortable in the sanctuary of our heart? So that Jesus, by his Spirit, abides in us and we in him. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, 
let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.